So it was uh, 1999, uh, the turn of the century. And that year, Major League Baseball did something kind of interesting. They decided to compile what they call the, uh, an all-century team. So they, they said, we're going we're gonna to come up with the greatest players of the 20th century, and we'll put them on like this kind of imaginary team. So they got this panel of experts, baseball historians together, and they came up with a list of 100, the 100 greatest players of the century. From that list, the people, baseball fans, were now allowed, allowed to weigh in. And uh, in fact, two million people did just that, two million votes. The 100 that the experts came up with was now trimmed down to, I think it was 30 or 31. And that was going to be the team. And they, they kind of did it based on uh, position. So, well, you got three outfielders on, on, a, on a team of, of nine. So, so there were more out. I think they had like uh, nine outfielders on this all-star team. They had six pitchers. And then the positions, first base they had two, second base they had two. Anyway, that all added up to about 30. And what they were going to do was... Uh, they, that would, they would, the 30, this team would be revealed at the World Series in the fall. That July, before the World Series, uh, this in fact, it was during the All-Star Game in Boston, they revealed the list of 100. So basically, the 100 in July, then from July to October, people could vote, and it had to come down to 30. Lou Gehrig was the most voted of all of them. Anyway, it was pretty cool. Um, the night of the uh, All-Star game, every living player who was on that list was there when they announced them at Fenway Park. And each, each of these uh, members of, that were selected were, they were you know, introduced, they came out onto the baseball diamond. So it was this incredible gathering of baseball royalty, the greatest, you know, who were alive. And you had also, you know, Babe Ruth's name was on it, and of course Lou Gehrig and, you know, Ty Cobb. So there were a bunch that had long since died. But I tell you, as cool as that was, the absolute highlight of this ceremony was the final player introduction, the last person who was going to be on this team of 30. Um, no, it was the last on this team of 100 that would eventually become 30. And remember, this was Boston. So it was Ted Williams. And they introduced him. He was the last one, uh, the greatest Red Sox of them all, maybe the greatest hitter ever. Well, Fenway Park went crazy. Like, it was just this wild, it was pandemonium, uh, standing ovation, at least 10 minutes long. And he came out in a kind of a golf cart. He looked like a king, like a king who was returning to his castle. And he was in his 80s, and he was kind of feeble, but that didn't matter. And then at a certain point, he got up, and he kind of struggled to get out of the, uh, the golf cart, and they gave him a ball, and he, and he threw the ball, and he pitched through the first pitch, and... It was a pretty good pitch, so the place went, Fenway went even crazier than the first time. It was, uh, it was an amazing moment. Um, you know, you had the present All-Stars from that season there. They're on the field. 
And then you've got, like I said, the living members of this all-century team. So you got, like, Tom Siva was there, Johnny Bench, Cal Ripken, Yogi Berra was there, Willie Mays was there. So total baseball legends. And in this moment, Ted Williams comes out. And they just surrounded him. It was so cool. It was so spontaneous. It was so unscripted. It was like this acknowledgement among this group of the greatest. He was the greatest. At least that night he was. I mean, it was Boston. He was an old man. I mean, there was a lot of emotion. But certainly one of them. And in this moment, there was just total separation. These guys are great. These guys are historical. Well, this guy's just in another, another company. You know, if you loved baseball, like, you didn't want it to end, uh, this moment. It was very emotional. I'm not even a Red Sox fan. You know, Ted Williams was way before my time. I don't remember, I don't remember him playing, but you couldn't help but be moved by it. Even if you aren't a baseball fan, I think you just... Even if baseball didn't matter, you watching this or you were there, like you knew something was happening. And now tonight's gospel. Jesus asks his disciples, what are people saying about me? And we just heard the response. Well, Jesus, they think you're one of the prophets. They think you're Jeremiah, Elijah, one of these Old Testament guys who's come back from the dead. Some people think you're John the Baptist. Jesus, they think you're a big deal, a very big deal. And then Jesus asks the second question, which is really the most important one. He says, oh, well, how about you guys? What do you think? You tell me who you think I am. And the question he asked them, I'd suggest he's asking us, or I'm going to ask you. So who do you, who is he to you? We don't want textbook answers. We don't want, you know, something from the catechism, as true as that is. We don't want something just kind of memorized, something from a book. Like, Jesus wanted to hear from their heart, from their gut. So you tell me who I am. Well, Peter said, well, they got it wrong. The people got it wrong, Jesus. You're not a prophet. You're not John the Baptist. They were important. Prophets matter. But you're way more than a prophet. You're like on a different roster. Kind of like the Ted Williams moment, maybe. Like, lots of really great people, the prophets. You're just somebody else. Jesus, says Peter, we know that you're God. You're way more than a prophet. You're the one that the prophets point everybody, that the prophets prophesied about. You're the one they kept telling people to wait for and be ready for. And because of that response, because it, Peter crushes it with that response, probably his finest moment, certainly up until that point, because of what he says, then Jesus starts saying stuff. And this is what we need to hear, I think. 
the things he said in response to Peter's amazingly true answer. Jesus starts talking about Peter. He gives him a new name. He says, you're the rock. In this church, this group that's just kind of beginning, it's going to be built on you. It's going to be built on a rock. And you will have authority and you will have influence and you will have insight and truth. God will work through you, Peter, and your church. He's talking about these keys. You've got these keys to the kingdom that nobody else has got, and you can't get anywhere else. Rocks and foundations and truth. And you know what's kind of interesting is where this whole conversation takes place? Caesarea Philippi, well, you know, probably most of us, I didn't really know much about where that was. I suspect most of you don't. Well, it's no coincidence that that's where this all happened. They went on like this two-day hike completely far from where they were and they go to what was probably the most secular pagan godless place you could go the Caesarea Philippi Caesarea named after Caesar like they saw Caesar as a god and in this craziest of secular places Jesus starts asking these questions like in the backdrop you've got Caesarea Philippi and he starts talking about truth and church, and authority, and Peter. No coincidence. He's like, if you want to find truth in this world, don't go look into Caesarea Philippi, because you're not going to get it. But you come to this community, you come to this church, and you'll find it. You know, we all know people, right? We all know people today who say things like, well, you know, I used to go to church, but I don't anymore. I've, I've become, I'm more, I'm more spiritual now. I'm not so much religious. I don't really need a church. I don't really get anything out of church. Well, whether they, whether they actually say that or not, there's lots of people living it, right? Well, it seems to me spirituality without religion is incomplete. It's not nothing. Spirituality is incredibly important. By the way, a religion without spirituality is bankrupt. It's more incomplete. The moral of the story is you need both. So when people kind of sing this, I'm spiritual but not religious song, it's just not enough. Think for a minute to somebody in your life like your, I don't know, like your go-to person. The person you really, a person you really respect. So when you're struggling, when you're uncertain, when you got a question, you don't know quite where to go, you find yourself going to this person first. You don't always listen to their advice, but probably more than not, you do. They're like your North Star. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a more formalized thing. It's like a, a counselor or a therapist. Maybe it's just your best friend. Maybe it's some coach or teacher you once had, some mentor figure. People have life coaches today. Somebody you go to for the answers. Well, whoever those people are, they better know Christ. If they don't know Christ, if they don't see life through the lens of Jesus, then I'd find a new mentor 
I'd find a new coach. I'm not saying ditch them. I'm not saying they have nothing to say, but I'm saying it's incomplete. If Jesus isn't significantly in the mix, something will be lacking. Why? You may be like, well, I don't know if I buy that. Like, I'm the person I'm thinking of, you ask me the question, I'm thinking of this guy or girl, and I love them, I respect them, but they're not really too Jesus-centered. Why, why does Jesus always have to be part of the mix? Why does he have to be the priority? Because of this gospel. Because of what is said in this gospel. Peter's answer to Jesus. You are the Christ. You are God. You're not a prophet. There's lots of prophets. There's always been prophets. There always will be prophets. And they've got their place. But they're not God. Jesus, you are God. And then Jesus' response to Peter is like, well, first of all, you're right. And because you're so right, I will live in this community. And I will work through you, Peter, because you will build this group. Hey, and I'm not saying it's only the church. Hey, we all know the church is far from perfect. You'd have to be blind or delusional not to know that. We've all known people in the church who were just idiots. Some pompous priest, some cranky nun, some whatever that we encountered growing up. And hey, way, way more serious than that as well. Terrible representatives of this church which Jesus spoke of in this gospel. It's not perfect. We know it's not perfect. It never was. It never will be. So when somebody says, yeah, well, it's all the scandal in the church, I'm done with it. Try again. Don't diminish scandal, but don't walk away. This is what I love about Peter, and I love the fact that of all the people that Jesus could have picked, he picked him. If you look at Peter in the gospels, I'll bet, I don't know this for a fact, but I'll bet more stories about Peter in the Gospels are kind of negative than positive. Because he was always screwing things up. Today, no. Today he nailed it. But today wasn't typical. More often than not, he got it wrong. He was scared. He was denying. He was presumptuous. I love that. Imperfect Peter, yes. Imperfect church, of course. But despite that, despite the humanity and the sinfulness, Jesus says there's a truth in this crazy church. There are these keys to truth that live in the church. And we're crazy if we don't acknowledge that. People who just say, I don't have to listen to what the church says. I don't have to consider what the church teaches. People who never think, you know, they're living their life and they're making maybe not great choices. They're never really given thought to that. They're never given a whole lot of thought to maybe like, well, why does, why does the church teach these, these things that are tough? They just feel like they don't need to consult. And then he got the second part of the question. First one was what? What are they saying about me? Second one is the first one, really. Peter, what do you think? Church, what do you think? 
And you know what? We can't just be told. Like, Jesus wanted to know what Peter thought. He didn't want a textbook answer. He didn't want something he'd memorized and he kind of like scribbled down on a test exam. He wanted to know from his gut and from his heart who he thought Jesus was. You can't ram that down somebody's throat. You give them a foundation in that, but at some point you got to let them ask the questions and struggle with the challenges of the church, the challenge of the gospel. Man, why do we teach some of these tough things? You can walk away and dismiss it. Well, that's just lazy and kind of cheap. Or we can sit with it and say, hey, I don't know, these keys of the kingdom, this rock foundation stuff, something true is here. How could we still be here? How could this crowd I'm looking at be here right now if there's not truth in this church? You know, when I was uh, in the seminary, my first year in the seminary, we used to have uh, Friday nights were our off night. We could go home. And I pretty much always did. Just wanted to get away from seminary for a week. I mean, for a day after having been there. And my parents were still living in Floral Park. I'd go home and my mom would make dinner. My, my brothers were married. They were out. My sister was still home. My father loved talking seminary. He loved, uh, he wanted to know what I was studying, what I was reading, what the classes were like. He was so interested. He kind of, my father fancied himself a bit of a theologian. He wasn't formally. I mean, he had actually he went, to a, went to a Catholic college, so he did have some theology, but, you know, a couple of credits. But he did know stuff because he loved the church. So he was kind of self-taught. Like he would read up on what the church said and taught. If the Pope came out with an encyclical, I mean, I don't think he was reading the actual encyclical, but he was reading like a, you know, a summary version of it. So we'd come home on Friday nights and we'd end up getting in these brawls, sort of, not physical, but like uh, these debates. Because I was telling him about the stuff I was teaching and he was kind of an old school guy, my dad. He certainly grew up in like the old church. And I'd say he was a pretty eloquent defender of it. And I'd be sort of like, you know, I'm learning all this stuff and I was kind of dismissing chunks of it. So that's where we would kind of clash. I mean, it was good clashing. But it would get tense at times. The older I get, the more I realize he was right about a lot. Not everything. But he came from a church that spoke truth. And a lot of that we kind of walked away from in the 1960s and 70s. Like we got away from teaching clearly certain truths. It wasn't like we taught the opposite. We just stopped teaching. Things became less clear, more uncertain. And my father saw the, the fault in that. And when I was, you know, 24 and taking these classes, I was sort of dismissive of that. Well, now I'm twice that age, and I got 30 years as a priest, and I kind of realized, man, my, my father was onto something. And like I said, he wasn't always right. And I challenged him sometimes, and I got him to wrestle with stuff that he kind of didn't want to at times. So which one is it? Is it the clear rock church? Or is it the questioning, we don't have all the answers, the human church? 
Which one should it be? Of course it's gotta be both, right? Sometimes we need clarity. Of course, sometimes there is clarity. I would even say in the days we're living, in this crazy culture we're dealing with, we probably need more clarity than not. Because nobody wants clear. Nobody wants truth. Everybody wants th their truth to be the truth. Well, that's a joke. But it's not always black and white. We know that too. Look at it like this. Say you had everybody here in this crowd's got a box of crayons. Tons of crayons in this box. Do you have a gray crayon in your box? Gray. If you don't, you better go get one. Because sometimes life is gray. Do you have a black and a white one in your box? Well, if you don't, you better go buy those too. Because sometimes it is black and white. Sometimes we need more gray, less black and white, sometimes the opposite. We need them both. So pursue both.